0: From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound.
1: Set zero level from this tone, please.
2: This microphone and this recorder and your program give you an opportunity that no society has ever had before in history. Let me tell you what it is. I personally think you're holding the mic a drop too close for me.
3: You sure have a lot to learn about tape editing.
0: Today on ReSound, we have two stories for you. The first is Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill. A woman goes in search of her father, who had 14 children with 13 different women. And then... Tony Schwartz, 30,000 recordings later. If you don't know who Tony Schwartz is, you will be blown away when you find out. Recordist, advertising genius, media campaign strategist, radio host, Academy Award winner, professor, and all around media guru. I'm Gwen Maxi. Stay with us. Now we're going to play you some of these recordings in an unusual way. A man has 14 children with 13 different women, dies young, and leaves his kids no choice but to learn about him through each other and through the letters he wrote from prison. Phyllis Fletcher is one of those children. By the time she was ready to reunite with her father, he was dead. Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill is Fletcher's first documentary, and let me tell you, it is a real find. Brutal, funny, and completely and refreshingly unsentimental. Fletcher's a radio reporter and producer in Seattle, who set out to learn more about her father by trying to find as many of her siblings and their mothers as she could. And, of course, she brought her tape recorder along.
4: Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill.
5: My dad had some strange ideas about how to support a family.
4: He brought this
6: dog home, and he said, well, I'm going to train this dog to to snatch purses I was just, I was totally appalled. I mean, you're going to get a dog and you're going to train it to steal purses, because evidently he had met somebody who had a dog that would do that.
5: Well, I mean, you could do it, but it would be so wrong. My dad gave me a pretty normal childhood, though. By the time I was one, he wasn't living with us anymore. When I was five, he stopped visiting. It was just me and my mom. I was an only child. At least, that's what I thought until I was six when my mom told me I had a new baby brother.
6: I remember you were really happy. And you wanted to talk about it at, uh, at school. And I thought, well, you know, I couldn't figure out how to tell you how to phrase it. Your dad and I hadn't had a baby, but your dad had had a baby.
5: I wasn't my dad's first child, and my baby brother wouldn't be his last. According to my dad, he had 14 children with 13 different women around the country. By the time I was off to college, my dad was off to the joint. I was ready to write him off, but I was close to my dad's family and they thought I should get to know him.
7: A letter to my little girl.
5: So I wrote to him and he wrote back. I didn't know what to say at first.
7: Well, Phyllis, just how in the hell are you doing? Fine, I hope. As far as me, I'm just doing this times as it comes.
5: But he was trying to understand my world.
7: Oh yes, didn't you tell me that you had a roommate? Well, if you do, tell her that your papa said hi. You can tell her where I'm at if you want to. It don't bother me. Hell, I ain't the only one in here.
5: So I tried to understand his.
7: I mean, some of these goose get so big, they can't even wipe their own butt. And a lot of them walk around with that bully type attitude. And someone way smaller than them ends up kicking them right in their ass.
5: I started to learn about him.
7: I really like to read books now that I can read. The kind of books that I like to read most are about black people and the things that they used to do that the white man didn't keep track of for our people. I also like to read books that show you how to build things out of wood. He was vain. I'm still looking good as hell. I'll tell you that. Your papa is looking good. He was
5: frustrated. I'm just locked up in a room like a fool. He bragged about himself.
7: Yes, my little girl, your papa can cook his ass off. I mean that I can boil water and make it taste good. I'll put some of my barbecue sauce in your nose and you'll eat your boogers."
5: He asked for my advice.
7: Hey, love, dig this. There's one thing that I want to learn how to do more than anything in the world, and that is learn how to spell. If I could spell, I would be a mother Can you tell your papa a good way to learn how to spell?
5: Did I mention he was vain and bragged about himself?
7: I like the cold weather. I like to dress for the cold. I mean, I be dressing, too. I like the fact that I be really sharp when I come out of my top coat. You know what I mean? When I come out of that coat, the people be saying, that nigga sure is clean. That's what I'm talking about.
5: He'd freak out on me if I didn't write back fast enough.
7: Sometimes I wonder if you're loose in the head, half retarded, emotionally slow, don't give a f, or just playing lazy.
5: But in his own way, he always tried to make it up to me.
7: You are one fine mother I mean, you look good. Yes, you do. You look like you sweat, honey, and you dookie don't stink.
5: Eventually, he had me hooked. When I'd see one of his letters in my mailbox, I'd open it on the spot. I'd write back as fast as I could so I'd get another one.
7: I'm almost out of here. Yep, just like the monkey said when he got his tail cut off. Won't be long now.
5: Just when I was getting to like our routine, my dad's sentence was up and the letters stopped. He would call from time to time, but we would never talk for long. Many times, he had fantasized about the day we'd finally meet again.
7: I'm hoping that one day in the near future that you and I will be able to walk down the street or go to the park or something and just tell you everything about my life that I can think of.
5: He wanted me to visit, but I was scared. What if he got angry and cursed me out in person? Or worse, I decided to keep our relationship long distance for the time being. The phone calls slowed, then stopped. One day, I got a phone call from my cousin. My dad was dead.
7: You never can tell. You just might die tomorrow or even in the next few minutes. Who knows?
5: I went to the funeral in a daze. It was my first open casket. I looked long and hard to memorize his face, but the details burned into my memory are the wrong ones. The orange pancake makeup, the stitches on his lips and eyelids. Only one of my dad's other kids was at the funeral. My oldest brother, Eric. He had just been getting to know our dad.
7: I had just hung out with him like two days before he died. Talked about old times, We hung out, talked BS to each other. Him and I would just hang out like old lost buddies. And uh, definitely, uh, I did love him. I did develop a love for him after just a couple weeks of hanging out with him.
5: I felt bad for not taking a chance on our dad like Eric had. All I had to remember him was a stack of letters. But it was more than some of his kids had, and some of them are okay with that. My older brother Kareem didn't know our dad and doesn't regret it.
4: I think the impact he had on my life was enough. He didn't have much to offer me during my formative years, and in adulthood I'm not sure how much more he had to offer.
7: Well, while I'm at it, I might as well tell you a few things about just why things are the way they are as far as me not being around as you and your 13 sisters and brothers were growing up. I guess you could say that this is one of the bad things in my life, not having the bond with my kids that a father should have. It hurts me to have left so many kids out there in this world. But believe me, at the rate that I was going, if somebody were to have to go, it was always best for the kid and the mother that I was the one to go. It's sad, but it's true. He consciously kept the distance from
8: people who were important to him. That's weird, but that's what I think he did.
5: My dad's father.
8: He would never make the plea that he didn't understand right from wrong. He knew what was right, he knew what was wrong. He also knew what he was going to do. And I think... He also knew that he was impulsive and unpredictable.
5: Sometimes the best thing an impulsive and unpredictable dad can do is take off.
9: Philip is definitely that uncle. Everybody's got that uncle.
5: But impulsive and unpredictable can be fun for a kid. My
0: cousin He He's like the one uncle that stands out, who's probably the troublemaker, but for kids is like the most fun to be around. He was always capping on somebody. He was always making cracks. And you were just glad that you were on his side of it and not on the receiving end of it because it could be kind of harsh sometimes.
5: <laughs> my dad may have been the world's greatest undiscovered insult comic, according to my
10: Uncle Paul. Constantly cracking jokes, constantly cracking on folks, constantly, you know, getting
8: people's face all the way, you know, out there. He was nuts. He was a nut. There's no question about it. Yeah.
11: <laughs> yes.
10: He really didn't care. So what? So you didn't want to be called cracker. Or you didn't want to be called uh, ugly. Or you didn't want to be called booger nose or whatever, you know. I don't care. Rip your ass up in there.
9: <laughs> but you couldn't help but laugh. My Aunt Sylvia. Before you know it, you're drawn in. It's not that you want to make fun of somebody, but you're drawn in. That was him
5: and Maxine, mother of my older brother, Kareem.
11: Well, he was funny. That guy was funny. He was funny. Yes, he was. Happy-go-lucky, not a care in the world. And before I know it, we were going together, and and it didn't last long, because I, I learned to see another side of him.
7: I have good qualities about myself. You were probably two and a half
6: months old, and I was carrying you.
7: And I can also cut the other
6: field loose on a person when I want to. And your dad just
11: kind of lost it. We got into an argument, and that's when the worst part of him came out, and he started to become violent. And he was on me like an animal. And I'm talking about... Kicking, stomping, he was in a rage. And he uh, threatened to kill me.
7: And that's the part of Philip that people don't want nothing to do with. And then once he
11: beat me, that was it. And all I could think of is I gotta get away from this guy. And I knew I had to do something. I thought, I've gotta protect this baby. So I just went to my brother. Boy, oh boy, I never witnessed anything like this. I think they had a stick, or a bat, or something, and they beat him so badly. I mean, blood was splattering on the wall. And so I called my
6: dad, and he came and got me right away.
11: They beat him, and they kicked him out of my house. God knows what happened to him when he was a little kid, to be like that. The rage and the anger. You know, probably uh, from when he was a little boy. He just must have had a very difficult life.
10: We'd all go out and we'd have to take him with us. Take your little brother, Philip, with you. Okay, Philip, come on. You gotta keep up. So we were like, well, Philip, if you wanna go with us you Know that uh, you gotta be able to take up for yourself because getting a fight, you know, we can't protect you. So we got out there, and uh, sure enough, the white kids came, you know, tried to gang us. And uh, Philip knew he was the smallest, so he picked up a baseball bat. And you know, this big guy hit him, and so he grabbed that bat and hit that guy upside the head. And, and we were like, Wow, <laughs> yeah.
9: Mom and Dad were not getting along together, and they were talking about divorce.
8: And uh, him and Mom were arguing every day. Mary's was at my throat, I was at her throat.
9: She was making dinner, cut up the potatoes, and they were in the sink.
10: Her and Dad got in an argument over something, and we went out to take a little bike ride or something while they talked. And when we came back, she had
8: left she said she was going to the store to pick up some groceries and be back to finish cooking dinner.
9: She was going to the store. I asked her if I can go with her. And she said, no, you have company. I said, I don't care, because I always went with her. And she didn't come back.
10: And then later on, the police came knocked on the door. Dad stepped outside, and then we could hear him crying and screaming, oh, no. And he grabbed us and said, your mother's." Suicide, she's taken her life. She drove over to church, confessed, and then she drove out to the Bay Bridge and jumped
8: off. It was a shock to me, shock to all the kids that uh, destroyed them.
10: Nothing was ever the same after that.
8: Nothing.
9: When Mama died, you know, we were just lost.
10: And Philip,
8: he never really adjusted after that. Of all the kids, Philip was the uh, the apple of her eye, so when she suddenly wasn't there any longer, that had a tremendous impact on
10: him. He was like devastated. He was in the third grade, I think.
8: The age that he was, he really needed her, and she wasn't there.
10: Philip tried his best to adjust, but of course, kids were insensitive, and so going back to school was pretty rough. And they would. Put people down, talk about them, you know dozens, and uh, of course, the dozens, shoes I always got around to talking about somebody's mama. after my mother passed away, it was when you were getting the best of them, then they would always revert to saying, Well, your mama was crazy, and she committed suicide and you after that, you just uh find yourself on top of them, beating them, and pretty much uh the attitude that we had at that time was you know we had lost our mother, so we didn't care about too much else not even life itself
7: when I was young I didn't care about nothing when I say nothing I mean nothing within a
8: year after she was no longer on the scene he began to have all kind of discipline problems he
9: kept running away and getting in trouble
8: your father Philip dropped out and I don't think he got past the eighth grade
7: I took to the streets at a very
8: young age after that he just floated around we've seldom heard from him and knew where he was. In the meantime, he was floating all over the place, running back and forth from one coast to the next. Um, But during that period, I don't know what happened to him. Because I was startled when he said he had 14 kids. I said, damn.
5: Despite my dad's troubles, he had a way with women. I thought he was the most beautiful person
11: I had ever seen. You know, he had a lot of rhythm. Very graceful. A Lot of rhythm. And he could dance. Boy, I remember going to a dance with him. He He was was an excellent cook, and he loved to entertain. The people would stop dancing and come and look at him on the floor. Of course, he was a real snappy dresser. He was a very exciting person. He was attractive to the opposite sex. He was that kind of a man. He had the humor, he had the personality, he had the charm, he knew what to say. He was halfway slick, <laughs>
4: you know? I heard also he had a good rap and he had a lot of quote-unquote game. He could talk uh, S-H-blank-T.
11: It was hard for a woman not to, not to like him. I guess him, the fact know. that
4: I'm here along with uh, many of my other sibs who, some of who I don't even know, is a testament to the effect that he had on women.
11: But I was kind of a you know, a desperate woman, I guess, for attention, affection. He was just so full of fun. And I guess I was really deep inside. I was so sad that I was attracted to that fun-loving element. I'll never regret meeting him, that's for sure, because before I knew it, I was pregnant. And
6: Philip was very persistent that he wanted a baby,
11: gave birth to a beautiful baby boy in July of 1971, and I vowed that I would be the best mother that I could possibly be. I knew that that we would have a beautiful baby. I don't regret it because I have such a beautiful son out of the whole situation. I have a son I never dreamed I'd be the mother of a doctor.
6: I know that, that I'm so glad that you're my daughter.
11: My dad gave
5: these women children, but what kind of a father was he?
6: Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill. Yeah. Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill never work and never will. I think there were more lines, but I can't remember.
9: Oh, I've forgotten. Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill, never work, never will. What's the rest of it? Do you know the rest of it?
10: Let's go. Sweet feel from Sugar Hill. Never work, never will.
4: All I did was rest, dress, read the press, and talk a lot
10: of mess. And talk
9: a lot of mess. Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill. Okay. <laughs> yep, that was it.
5: Except the reading part.
9: Except the dressing part, too.
5: I knew my dad had kids in California near my Aunt Sylvia. I asked her if she could find Philip Jr. and Janae so I could finally meet them. Philip Jr. and Janae are the only two of my dad's kids who have the same mother. They must have gotten more time with our dad than the rest of us had. I wanted them to tell me, what was he like? I
3: don't know, I, just, I remember when I was little, I remember he came over to our house when we lived in the South area, and he had a big old Afro.
5: So what do you remember about our dad?
3: Nothing. Really?
8: Nothing, nothing at all.
5: It was around until you were like five though,
8: right? Oh. Yeah, but I don't really remember. I don't remember nothing. Nothing?
5: Nothing. Tell
3: you the truth, I remember
5: little
9: things. I don't even know who this dude is, just like you don't. And there's times I'll be like, man, why? what did we ever do? You know what I'm saying? Why, why does dude do this to us? You know? Because now
8: I don't really, truly, I don't really feel nothing. I don't even know. There was
5: one more person who might be able to fill in the blanks. My dad married twice, both times with no children. His first marriage was short. His second marriage lasted
3: six years. My name is Juan L. Fletcher. I was his wife.
2: I got you! Uh-huh,
3: He chased me for seven years. I used to tell him, no, me and you, no, Phil, Uh uh-uh. And then, you know, he had this way of wearing his hair. And I used to say, who wants to go around with a with a man with the hair all braided up like that, looking wild and crazy, sticking everywhere, you know? And then he got a curl put in. I was shocked, <laughs> you know? I said, well. <laughs> well, he did everything he could to, to get me, and he finally got me. We seemed to do well together, and we got married. Everything went smooth for a while, and uh, and then he went and did something crazy. He, um, this is the part I really don't like to bring up, but he, he took a razor blade and cut my throat, you know.
5: He was facing 15 years, but from the jailhouse, my dad reconciled with his wife and persuaded her to testify on his behalf. The charge against him was downgraded. He served two and a half years.
3: Amazingly saying, when he got out, things changed.
5: Despite all the social science that would have predicted otherwise, my dad
3: never hurt his wife again. I think why he spent the time in the prison gave him a lot of time to think about his life, things he did, and make a change. One else says they had a good life at home.
5: My dad was a devoted house husband. He cooked, cleaned, and ironed. He lifted weights, he played conga drums really well. He made congas and sold them and did other woodwork for cash. He played a lot of bingo. It seemed like a pretty good life. But there was something my dad wasn't telling his wife.
7: At the age of 18, I was already hooked on heroin and was unable to provide for anything that had any value to it. Just my habit. And that's where I went wrong. He knew I didn't
3: like it. He know I didn't like it. He used to try to hide it from me, but that's something you can't hide. I can look at him and tell, you know. The way
5: Juan L. figured it, my dad's habit wasn't causing her any problems, so she tried to ignore it.
3: I said, well, okay, babe, let me leave We kissed each other. He says, I love you, babe. I said, I love you, too. See you later. Went to work. Got off, come home open up the door, and I could hear the water running. And it was the hot water. It had ran all day till it ran cold. And when I looked up and saw the light on it, and when my eyes came down, I saw him laying down there.
2: This 44-year-old man with a history of intravenous drug abuse was found dead at his home with drug paraphernalia nearby.
3: If you look in a dead person's eyes, there's nothing there and there was like nothing there.
8: His
0: death is attributed to acute opiate intoxication.
3: Then when I touched him, he was cold. I knew he was dead. When I called 911, that's when I started screaming. Screaming, screaming, screaming.
1: The manner of death is classified as probable accident. Method of disposition, cremation.
3: We had a memorial service for him and then and then I had him cremated, cause that's what he wanted. Like all of my dad's old flames, his widow likes to think about his good qualities. You remember that picture? Oh yeah! Wow. <laughs> and this one here of you is uh, when you was a little girl.
5: Yeah, I didn't even know he had that.
3: He have it. You'd be surprised. He used to brag on these pictures. That's how he was. Did my dad have
5: a right to brag about his kids? Let's say you go to a sperm bank. A donor profile grabs your eye. The guy is a musician. He's in great shape. His children are intelligent and undeniably attractive. Among them are a physician, an airline captain, a computer scientist, and a reporter. Not bad. But you read the fine print. Violent felon. Heroin addict. Family history of suicide. Would you have children by this man?
7: I mean, you look good. Yes, you do. Now, ain't you glad that I'm your daddy? I said, hope you know that more than half of that came from me. You got a lot of good looking brothers and sisters also. I ain't made an ugly nigga yet. <laughs>
4: Shakespeare, I didn't know he was a black man. <laughs> I think he was proud of us.
5: Let's ask the doctor, his son, Kareem, given the talents that developed in our dad's kids who all grew up in poor homes or ghettos thanks to him. Did our dad have something to brag about based on genetics alone?
4: I marvel at some of the things we've been able to accomplish despite having Phil as a dad. And, um, you know, I think some of that was inherited. I think the data is there, and as a scientist, I think you cannot rule out that genetic contribution. Absolutely not.
3: He had the genes. He had the genes.
5: Eric's mother, Gail, agrees, but she reminds us.
3: Knowledge. Evidently, he made it with some pretty good women, too, because he didn't do it all now. All that ain't him.
4: Also, I do acknowledge the presence of these remarkable women. He was able to bless the world with some remarkable individuals, but uh, it was due in large part to the, the mothers of these individuals or the grandmothers and the women who were, who were involved in their rearing. He wasn't around for the best and the most difficult part, but that's, you know, that's, that's parenting.
5: None of us had Philip as a true parent, but we had our moms, and now we have each other.
4: You don't have to be born and raised together to be a family. You could still be close. You could still have meaningful relationships with good people. It's very exciting to know you have brothers and sisters out
3: there. I thank
9: God that you came and found us because you're the next person that we know. You know what I mean? It's all gonna connect one day, one way or another. We're all gonna find out who each other are.
5: I have a little sister now, and it feels like a lot to live up to. (laughs) I just have to say for the record that we met like about 10 minutes ago. (laughs) So what's it like meeting new siblings? weird. (laughs) You don't know what to say, how to to act around a person you never
9: met before, you know?
5: Especially seeing somebody that looks just like you. (laughs) (laughs) When Janae and I met, my Aunt Sylvia took a Polaroid of us. As the image started to come in, just over my head I could see them forming, two fingers, the universal photographic prank, just like my dad did to my mom in one of the few photos of the three of us. I have another younger sister in Mexico. She just called me for the first time, and she sounds as sweet as she looks in her photo. According to family legend, I have a brother or sister in Shreveport, Louisiana, and in San Francisco, a younger brother born to a Filipina. If my dad was right, there are at least five more of us out there. Can any of you hear this?
7: I must tell you the truth. I would love very much to see all of my kids do things with them and for them. I figured that one day, if God meant for it to be, that my kids will find me. Well, love, Papa's gotta go. Loving you with words, Papa Phil.
5: Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill is dedicated to my mother, Susan Mullen.
7: Yes, you were blessed with one of the best mothers that God ever put on this earth.
5: And to all of our mothers, Gail Green, Maxine Salam, Wanda Walker, Joey Morris, and rest in peace, Irene Perryman. I'm Phyllis Fletcher. Thanks for listening.
0: Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill. We found this story so fascinating that we really wanted to find out more about it. So, Phyllis, what did you know about your dad when you were little? Did you know everything, or were things kept from you? Well, I definitely didn't
5: know everything. I remember very, very faintly my dad coming— actually, I shouldn't say it's faint. It's a strong memory, but I just didn't have a context for it at the time. My dad actually came over a few times, and it seems like now he never stayed for that long. I was probably about two, three, four in there, and by the end, my mom was always crying, And it was intense, and then because my mom would cry, I would cry, and I didn't know what was up with that. So it wasn't really that anything was kept from me, but I just knew from a young age that he was scary, but I didn't know exactly why. But I also knew he was funny, and and he was a great musician. I got to see him play once when I was little, so I knew things about him, but I think it wasn't so much from what people told me. It was just from those limited experiences.
0: So you knew about uh, how charismatic he was, but you also knew that he was scary and dangerous. And, yeah. And then, how did you? How were you able to integrate those two parts of him in in the way you thought about him?
5: Well, I think I I couldn't in a lot of ways because all I had were these snippets, and that was part of why when my family insisted that I write to him I kind of didn't know what to say I didn't even know where to start and once we struck up a correspondence I was scared to see him they insisted
0: that you write to him
5: yeah I met my dad's parents my dad's father and stepmother when I was in middle school and by the time I hit college they said you know you really should develop a relationship with your father I said well I don't know about that and they said well you're gonna do it (laughs) And they, they really insisted that I write to him. And by this time, he was in prison. And today, I'm so glad that they made me do that, because I know I never would have done it on my own. When you're that age, you just think you know everything. And you're like, well, I grew up without him. I don't need that, you know. But it's, now it's the only thing I have.
0: Do you think that the production of this piece brought the different strands of the family together and was restorative for the family in any way?
5: I think in some ways, yeah, I mean, definitely I got to meet all these people. People got to meet each other sort of just through listening to the tape. And I think that it's such a life change to hear, oh, you have a a sister and this is what she sounds like. I know that my brother Eric, who plays our dad in the piece, when he heard Janae crying about not knowing why our dad did all of this, why did he create all of us and then leave, he was so touched. What was the family's reaction to hearing the piece? Overall, the, the reaction I've heard has been very positive. I mean, my mother loved it. My brother, Eric, loved it. Kareem and his mom, they loved it. Other people I haven't heard from, and I don't know. I mean, I hope that it was valuable in some way. It's possible that it was harder for them to take I've learned that my brother, Eric, carries it around with him. He's a pilot. He's an airline captain. And he plays it for his colleagues who listen to NPR. He plays it for, uh, you know, other people in the family, uh, on on other branches of his family who have grown up in similar circumstances. And they dig it, hmm. you know, and they always want to know, how'd she do that? Because they're sort of, you know, they. I think Tavis Smiley tried to address this and has talked about this since he left NPR, but there's... There really is a huge untapped audience for public radio out there. And my brother would play this stuff for people. And they would they would always want to know, how'd she do that? And, you know, wait, she made a documentary, but it's for the radio? It's just something that, that they don't know about. Partly, I think, because it's not marketed to them. And they were just blown out. And I think it it shows there is an audience for that stuff if people are willing to produce it. So... I hope that if anyone did have a problem with it they would talk to me but, but um I haven't heard that they do, so
0: now what do you think you got out of producing this piece personally? I mean, has it been a little bit of a emotional voyage for you? Oh, definitely.
5: I mean the single greatest thing that inspired me to create this piece was my dad's letters. I mean they're they're woven throughout the piece and these letters, ever since I started getting them, I'd be like, man, check this out. And I would read some of it to friends or to, you know, some of my half-siblings half, half siblings who I just met, you know, my brothers. And people would be blown out every single time. They'd be like, he didn't say that. But they knew I didn't make it up, so they knew it had to be real. One of my friends said, if this were a book, if this stack of letters were a book, I would read it. And I was like, wait a minute. My dad would have been awesome on the radio. I took excerpts from the letters I emailed them to my brother I got this old Marantz tape recorder with a phone jack and hooked it up in my house and I said okay all that stuff I emailed you read it go and he was like okay and so he read it into the phone and just that just just that was an emotional journey in itself you know I mean it was it was amazing I mean at the end of the by the end of the phone conversation we were I mean there was this huge silence just filled with love, you know, for each other and for our dad, I think. It was just great. I still love that tape. I still love that. And that was part of why I put the phone sound effect on our dad's voice uh, when Eric was playing our dad in the piece, because I just love that that distance, the simultaneous distance and intimacy of the phone. I mean, it's, sometimes it's like in a family, you need to have a reason to talk about stuff in some ways. And this piece got to become the reason.
0: Are you still trying to find other siblings? Is this going to be kind of a long effort on your part?
5: I think in some ways it's going to be lifelong, but I I do feel in some ways that I've also hit a wall. I'm like, well, now what can I do other than than get this piece as much exposure as possible? (laughs) Expecting to hear from some long-lost siblings? Oh, that would be so great. That would be great. And uh it it would it would just be a blast. I mean, I would love even just to see a picture of somebody, but I would love to meet anyone. Anyone, and, you know, we know there are seven more out there. So, or is it 5? <laughs> All y'all Phillips kids. <laughs> Come on down. You can email me. You can find me. Just do a little Google search. It's pretty
0: easy. <laughs> That was Phyllis Fletcher, producer of Sweet Phil from Sugar Hill. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. If you have any comments or questions for us, or you happen to know any of Phil Fletcher's other children, drop us a line at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Coming up, the world at your fingertips, or at least what the world sounds like. Stay with us.
1: This is what I call absolute sound
0: every field of endeavor however popular or obscure has its great figures and so it is in the field of sound if there has ever been a man obsessed with sound it's tony schwartz and i do mean obsessed Tony Schwartz has not only recorded some of the most important social figures of his day, like Paul Robeson and W.E.B. Du Bois, but also some of the most mundane daily occurrences, children playing jump rope, cabbies in New York, his niece as she grew from a babbling newborn to an articulate young adult. He single-handedly changed the world of advertising with his creation of the Daisy ad, highlighting the dangers of nuclear arms. He's created political campaigns, a radio show that ran for over 30 years, short films, books, lectures. And it all started in 1945, when he got his first wire recorder, and he's been recording ever since. 30,000 recordings later, Davia Nelson and Nikki Silva, also known as the Kitchen Sisters, interviewed the interviewer and produced the producer. Close the door and take the phone off the cradle. You will never hear anyone like him again.
2: New York 19 was the non-commercial musical life of my postal zone. And the postal zone was New York 19 at that time. It's 10019 now. That was the area I could travel in. I'm not able to travel far. I have agoraphobia. And in walking, I could just go around my postal zone. In the midst of Manhattan, I made the first portable tape recorder. I brought the VU meter from inside the case to the top so I could look down at it and see how loud things were. I put a strap on it so I could have it over my shoulder. That was 1945. I could go record children in the park doing jump rope rhymes, and I recorded the street festivals. I made 14 records for Folkways Records. You can see them up there. The children's games of the streets. I called it one, two, three, and a zing, zing, zing.
8: Macy's anymore, more, There's a big fat policeman at the door, door, door.
2: I was interested in the sound around us.
8: Macy's anymore, more.
1: Two things that you're not allowed to carry in taxi cab. One is fish. The other is Betty. That goes I had the a
2: moment. wrist mic. I had a brush lapel mic, and I would put it on a wristwatch band, and I'd pull it out my sleeve. So I would just walk around and record that way. Like when I went into the pawn shop and I did cab drivers, that way I recorded about 700, 800 cab drivers.
8: Do away with your parking lots in Midtown from 14th Street to 59th Street. No parking allowed in the daytime, only after 6 o'clock. I
2: had recorded the songs on jukeboxes in the restaurants or bars that catered to the various groups around my postal zone. What I would do is get people in the restaurant who spoke English to come over and translate it for me.
3: The country in which I was born is suffering many, many back economic things, even though I'll feel terrible there. In my country there are always flowers, that is my paradise. I won't change Puerto Rico by 60 New York. I won't change Puerto Rican chickens by frozen chickens in the ice boxes here.
7: This is Max
1: Nichols of Peter marisburg Natal, South Africa, calling Tony Schwartz of New York, USA.
11: Hello, Tony Schwartz. I'm bringing you greetings from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
1: This is a Greek folk song from island of Creta. Hello, Tony.
3: My name is Thomas Knott, and I come from
1: Kalani, Kerry, Island.
2: When I got my first wire recorder, I asked the company if they would give me the guarantee slips from people from all over the world and all over this country who bought the recorders who said they were buying them because of their interest in music. And I would exchange wires with people in other countries who were interested in folk music and they would send me material from their countries.
1: My name is Tony Schwartz. The music you hear is a Peruvian Indian playing his guitar on a quiet summer evening. This is one of 15,000 recordings I've collected, recordings of folk music and folklore, recordings I've exchanged with people all over the world.
8: Hello, Tony. I received your letter here the other day. Well, I'm gonna send you a wire now. This stuff that I generally do, you know, singing the cowboy stuff. I don't know if you fellas New York City appreciate this kind of music Uh, we folks around here do, this hillbilly stuff.
1: That's how it started. Uh, Recordings came in from all parts of the United States, from all parts of the world. Recordings on wire, recordings on on tape. One of my exchanges was with a man who wanted sounds he no longer heard. Tony, I wonder if you'd do me a favor. I live out in the country, and originally I came from the city, and uh, I kind of miss it. I was wondering if you would record some sounds of the city and send them out to me. I'd I'd really like to hear it. How about it? Part of my answer was recorded in Times Square. A week later, I found this in my mailbox. (laughs) Tony, I uh, received your sounds of the city this morning and uh, I've been playing them ever since. I noticed that uh, you said that you recorded them about 8.30 at night to sort of reciprocate, here's the sounds of my country, 8.30 at night. The voices and music of the world came into my apartment in New York City and I traveled no further than my mailbox.
2: In people talking, there's an innate musicality in the way certain people speak and also in the barkers at nightclubs or various places. The Sound of Selling used to be the people, vendors going by in the street or people singing in the backyard or shouting in the backyard. Now it's over the radio or television. I did a whole record on the Sound of Selling. Uh, vegetable men shouting apples, apples on the street with that horse and wagon selling vegetables
3: My mule is white My charcoal is
11: black
3: I sell my charcoal
2: There were men the who would black. go around buying old clothes Chocolate. and they'd yell I cash clothes, I cash clothes. Choco,
8: Choco. It was February 3rd, 1956, when Tony Schwartz appeared at the information desk of the animal shelter to ask for a dog.
3: The attendant will take you into the adoption ward in Ward A. You look the dogs over and if there's anything you select, you tell them that's the dog
11: you want. These are obedience-trained dogs working toward degrees. Which, of course, that's like receiving a college diploma.
2: I did a radio program on sound once a week on WNYC for over 35 years. I would do it on any subject that came up to me during the week. Good
1: morning. Every year for the last 13 years, I've been presenting the story and sound of the growth of my niece. We've all heard of a time-lapse photography. Well, I'm going to apply this technique to the growth of my niece, Nancy, in sound. Thirteen years condensed into two minutes and thirteen seconds. Here goes.
8: Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water.
1: Jack fell down and
8: broke.
1: And Jill came tumbling.
2: I would record the sound of my daughter growing up. I have her first cries after being born. I had a microphone over her bed and a recorder in our bedroom. And any time I heard her beginning to wake up or anything, I could turn on the recorder and record the sound of her waking up.
8: Tony, if the dog makes... Willie in the house. If he's ha, if you have to make him house broken, if he makes Willie in in the apartment, you have to slap him with a the newspaper. Then if he doesn't do it again, he's house broken.
1: What do you think of the Russians sending the dog up in the satellite?
8: Well, I hope he doesn't get hurt. But if he does, I'm sure they'll send up a medical satellite. A
2: uh, black woman. Well, um, Was working as a nurse for her child. And when she'd go home at night, I'd take her out to get a cab to go up to Harlem. If she'd hail a cab, they wouldn't stop for her. Blacks couldn't get taxis to pick them up. And I interviewed cab drivers why they don't like to go to Harlem, and I put that in the program.
8: It's all girls. You'll mess my hair, and it's very special for tonight. It's just the way I want it. It's a page boy with a high top, and that's the way I like it. I'm taking guitar lessons, and that's fun. I take drama lessons after school, and that's great. And I've been working
11: on the school newspaper. I might be editor next next year. And
8: I've been discovering boys.
2: How would I come to these ideas? Just from being human. And working with sound, and knowing how sound affected me and affected other people.
8: Here lies Tony Cherney, once a pet turtle of Darryl Cherney. Died February 24,
1: 1964. Who
8: died? My turtle, Tony. He got a sore shell, and he tried to save him by giving him hamburger, but he died. And we're gonna bury him.
1: How do
8: you feel about it? Not too well. Sort of a tragedy for me. I'm going to play taps and the flag is because I like him. Just like the President of the United States when he died except but he's like in my family. Right, give me the turtle. Bye. Come to me
0: my melancholy Holly, baby, cuddle up and don't be can we, blue. Can a baby
3: feel blue?
0: Anybody can feel blue. All your fears are
1: blue. foolish fancies, maybe.
2: Well, I was born at the beginning of Time, <laughs> Time magazine started the year I was born. Harry Belafonte was a bop singer when I met him. I got him into the Jamaican songs.
1: This is another working song. It is the banana loading song.
2: I met a woman who was a cashier at Macy's and her name was Louise Bennett. And she knew all the Jamaican folklore. And I played those songs to Harry Belafonte. I got from a nightclub in Africa songs like Waymo Away, Way, remember that? And Everybody Loves Saturday Night. Weem Away I gave to the Weavers. and. Uh, everybody Loves Saturday Night, I gave to, what's his name? He owns a casino in Atlantic City. He used to be a singer. He also, I watched Jeopardy on television. You ever watch that? And who was the guy that is the plunder of it? Merv Griffin. I gave him Everybody Loves Saturday Night.
1: Good morning. Today I'd like to play two beautiful songs sung by Paul Robeson.
2: I think he was one of the great singers of our time. In the McCarthy era, Robeson couldn't travel because they called him a communist, which is ridiculous. He wasn't a communist. He just believed in internationalism. He wanted to send tapes to various places around the world. One I did to send to England for a speech for him. It was about peace, so I had his song behind it. Then I had his narration over that.
8: Peace and friendship with our great wartime ally and enduring peace growing out of united, united nations, out of friendship with the Soviet people...
2: I did it for many people who couldn't travel, for W.E.B. Du Bois, I would uh, record speeches that he wanted to give in South Africa.
1: Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois of New York, writer and president of the Pan-African Congress, to the peoples of Africa, greeting.
2: Then, when the Hollywood Ten were supposed to go to jail for being un-American, and many of them had made movies that I
9: loved,
2: I recorded all of them the night before they went to jail. Dalton Trumbo telling what he was accused of.
1: How did they treat you in front of this committee? I mean, the, the committee was anti-Semitic,
10: anti-labor, anti-Negro, pro-war. And had been denounced by everyone from Roosevelt down over the of 12-
2: ridiculousness of this McCarthy era you know he started the whole thing of loyalty oaths most people think of evil as the sounds of gunfire or thunder or lightning or something I found and believe that the most evil sounds in the world are the sounds out of mouths of people I've used media to shame people into proper behavior. In primitive cultures, if someone did something shameful, word of mouth got around the village in an hour or so, in our culture. The same thing exists, but if you divide the distance of our country into the speed of sound, you find it would take a 64th of a second to reach across the country by telephone, radio, television, or anything like that. I did a commercial with the Pope against nuclear weapons. I've been against nuclear weapons since 1939. One thing I've done was the daisy spot for President Johnson. I was working on sound for six or seven commercials in the campaign against Barry Goldwater. One of them was a little girl counting down and picking the petals off a daisy. Then there's the countdown. And then the bomb goes off.
11: the stakes, to make a world in which all of God's children can live, or to go into the dark. We must either love each other, or we must die.
1: What would you say to young people who smoke? I would say that they're very foolish, even to consider it. I
2: had to have my voice box (laughs) removed. I have a hole in my throat, that's what I I teach through. a course for NYU. I also teach media and public health at Harvard. Both places come here. I have agoraphobia. I don't travel, I'm not able to travel. I have used the telephone to teach all over the world, in Sweden, in Japan, in South America, uh, Australia. My brother built a one-tube radio, which never worked. And I used to go up in the attic and play a spaceship like Jack Armstrong. I was also interested in physics, and the physics teacher was interested in amateur radio, and I... I first built my own receivers and huge 20-meter antennas, and I built my own little shack where I had a 16 by 16, and I had my radio station in the front, my bed in the back, and I ran a telephone line up to the house so my mother could call me in for supper. I made up shortwave listener cards. I speak to them on the radio, and I would tell them how they're coming in. I think the most important thing we can work on in communication is to make the world safer for the people who live in it. People, that's what I was most interested in. People in their their life and what they do.
0: Tony Schwartz, 30,000 Recordings Later. Produced by the Kitchen Sisters, Davian Nelson, and Nikki Silva. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxai. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program through thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Humanities Council. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else. Unless you live everywhere else.